This is Leif Erickson, Insights Partner at Momenta. Welcome to our Digital Industry Podcast Series. In these podcasts, we capture insights from some of the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They are executives, entrepreneurs, consultants, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is, like the team here at Momenta Partners, they are deep industry practitioners. We hope you find these podcasts informative and we welcome your comments. Welcome to the latest Momenta podcast. My name is Leif Erickson, Insights Partner here at Momenta, and our guest today is Peter Bryant, Managing Partner, partner at Clario, a leading growth strategy consulting firm. Peter has spent his career at the forefront of helping companies, both large and small, manage change in the face of digital disruption. In addition to large multinationals in the energy and manufacturing sector, he has actively advised startups. He is co-author of The Growth Champions, The Battle for Sustained Innovation Leadership. Today, we're going to discuss Peter's views on what the next decade looks like for the energy, manufacturing, and infrastructure sectors. Thanks for joining us today, Peter. Left, thank you very much. appreciate the invitation to join you on this. So, Peter, let's maybe start with a, a bit about your professional background. You know, how did you get into this business of growth strategy consulting and and how does your background inform your views of, of the world and the role of digital technology in it? Sure. Um, it's kind of a, I have kind of a, a unique background, which gives me a unique perspective uh, on this. So I, first, I spent 25 years in the enterprise software industry, uh, and aging myself actually started in the early 80s, which was really the advent of the enterprise software industry. So through that experience, I saw at least two, three digital transformations, starting with uh, taking the very boring manual tasks of back office accounting, you know, general ledger accounts payable, accounts receivable, and basically digitized all that. Uh, and that was all the precursor for ERP. So, and, and for uh, 10 of those years, I was in CEO president roles. Uh, and that was in both big enterprise software companies with companies like GE, which had a software company back then, and Computer Associates, and then a couple of startups here in the U.S., uh, secondarily, I've been for the last 16 years when we founded Clario, has been advising large companies uh, on innovation transformation, and a lot of that is revolves around how you're applying digital technology uh, uh, within your business, not exclusively. Uh, so just advising those companies and also how they work with the startup ecosystem. So we've done a lot of work with corporate venture capital uh, and the venture capital community in general. So. Uh, I also sit on the board of Chryslix, which is a venture capital fund. I've been on that board for five years now. Uh, and fund four is actually around investing uh, in the digital enablers of Industry 4.0. And the limited partners of Chryslix are all major heavy industry companies from the utility, manufacturing, mining, oil and gas sector. So that uh, gives us another uh, perspective. So if you kind of, kind of triangulate those three things, uh, you know, there's the 25 years in software, which I say makes me technically dangerous, having lived through multiple digital transformations, advising large companies around that, and then sitting within the venture capital community, uh, both, you know, working with the LPs as well as startups. I think that gives me a, a very unique viewpoint on, on what's going on in this area. Yeah, that uh, very true and very interesting, too, because as, as you no doubt um, 
know at every one of those inflection points on that that journey of of sort of digitalization of industry um there's been resistance right to that to that uh, change you know whether it was going from homegrown systems to package systems from ultimately package systems to software as a service to the cloud etc any thoughts on that yeah i think uh, uh that Absolutely. I think uh, as I look back, uh, you know, working with companies from the early 80s until I left the software industry in the mid 2000s, is there's just been you know, every adoption curve has met significant resistance from within companies. Um, you know, whether it's you know, digitizing manual tasks or enhancing productivity uh, through uh, decision support software back in the 90s. So yeah, and a lot of that's around mindset and culture, and I know we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. But yeah, I think there's, yeah, it's always to me the conventional thinking because uh, these are all you know, disruptive and transformative by their nature, uh, and and just by definition the corporate antibodies, as I call them, come out to try and stifle that or resist it. And yeah, that's kind of a subconscious reaction versus, you know, I'm not going to accept these things. So it's, it's a very much a subconscious reaction. No, nobody says it explicitly. So that's a good segue into, you know, sort of where we're at today and where we're going. Um, if you think about mm. sort of the industrial sectors, you know, manufacturing, en en energy, et cetera, infrastructure, mm. um, really hasn't seen the kind of change or transformation that's rocking sort of retail and media and even financial services. And so What's your thoughts on that and how that evolves over the next decade? You know, how will digital technology ultimately impact these uh, these industries? Is it going to be you know, an iterative, incremental thing, improve a little bit of efficiency here, uh, reliability there, or is there some transformative thing on the horizon? Yeah, I think it's kind of, uh, I kind of to answer that question, I'd first like to kind of bucket digital transformation into kind of three distinctive areas at kind of the meta level, because uh, I think that's important because this is a very uneven playing ground across heavy industry. Um, so we're applying a lot of these new technologies, AI, machine learning, additive, robotics, et cetera, uh, into three areas. One is company, heavy industry is trying to drive efficiency and productivity. That's the first area within their core operations. Secondarily, uh, they're being used to develop new products and services uh, to grow their businesses and to capture higher levels of value from their customers. And then the third area is actually one that's kind of emerging is then companies responding to societal demands. Uh, and those include things like climate change and recycling of products, et cetera, closed loop economies. So I kind of put it into three buckets. And I think digital technology is a key enabler uh, of, of responding uh, to it in each of those three areas. And then if you look across sectors, um, you'll see there's uh, different responses uh, and that there are different parts of their journey relative to each of those three areas. So so it's very much a very um, uneven playing ground. So, and I think also, you know, efficiency and productivity, you know, the disruption is really coming from within. They just got to drive that. And there's good examples of where companies are doing well there. I think the new products and service areas will delve into that. I think this is a real challenge uh, to build new products and new services around digital technology and make those grow rapidly relative to the disruption from startups and big tech companies. And then I think potentially one of the bigger challenges is responding to these societal demands. 
um, and applying technology in a way that's going to transform industry, whether it's through emissions control, you know, recycling, et cetera. So, yeah. Let's let's key in on one of those because that's of particular interest to a lot of our um, our customers and listeners, and 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 that is around the area of of sort of products to services and digital products. It seems that there's there's been a lot of emphasis on that for a few years now, and and a lot of companies trying to move in that direction with limited progress. I, I know there are success stories out there, but there's there there's a lot of uh, you know, pilot projects, and we've tried this, but there's there, whether it's resistance from the actual end customers or the inability to transform their own organization, or, you know, companies that are trying to turn products into services and and add digital services are are not you know not moving at the pace we thought a few years ago. Any thoughts on that? Uh, I've got a lot of thoughts. I could take a few hours actually, but uh, seriously, yeah, I. This is a really, really hard area for companies, and I think this is the area where the heavy industry is most open to disruption from outside. Um, and I don't think they realise it because I think heavy industry naturally thinks in a kind of an asset-heavy mentality. They own factories and mines and refineries and oil platforms and steel factories, etc. And they kind of don't. And but you know, with digital products and services, it kind of opens a standard of asset-like models. So I think there's uh, a, 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 a tremendous um, challenge for them. I was at a Fortune brainstorm, tech brainstorm in Aspen last year. Uh, one of the things I noticed was that uh, companies were lamenting how difficult it is to launch uh, digitally-based new products and services. So. Uh, there's tremendous challenges that they face uh, from within the organization, which is, you know, kind of pro I bucket them into kind of traditional processes, et cetera. So, I mean, one of the things I say is that, you know, the mere ownership of these technologies is not enough. So if you take 21st century technology, whether it's AI, machine learning, whatever, uh, and then apply a mindset, a business model, a business approach, a culture that's 20th century, then you'll fail. Okay, you've got to get both of those things right. You've got to have the technology and the access to it. That's easy. The second part is the really hard part. So, and unless you can marry those, and the danger is for these industrial companies is you have two cohorts that are attacking them, one industry at a time. Obviously, you have startups uh, that are doing everything within, within a 21st century approach. Uh, and we know startups are really good at how to identify, how do I extract value out of these uh, industry um, you know, ecosystems and value chains. But the second one, which is, I think, unique uh, in this time, is you have companies that look and act like startups, like an Amazon, but that just have resources vastly superior to any industrial company uh, and also have a tolerance for experimentation, uh, you know, risk, risking into products and you know, do something, throw it away. And so they act and behave in 21st century manner, but they have the resources of massive companies. And that's kind of unique in this day and age. So um, so I don't see too many companies in the industrial space. And there are, and I can talk about a couple of examples, if you wish, that have really successfully launched digitally-based products and services um, into the market that scale, right? Um, right, right. Again, we're talking, right. About the industrial, we're talking about the industrial sector now, because there are other sectors where they have been. But, you know, you know it, it's... So. It's interesting you mentioned Amazon because, you know, other players in the uh, the retail space, including you know, quite large ones like Walmart, have have 
cried foul as uh, the rise of Amazon because they weren't you know measured or didn't have to adhere to the same metrics that they did it to in terms of you know profitability, et cetera. And of course, as you say, they they get access to capital the way these traditional companies don't. So, but but one right. ha- that begs the question, of course, is you know when Amazon was much smaller. What were these other companies doing, right? That was their opportunity then to uh, get out yeah. of the gate, but they waited until it was well, not too late. I mean, they're all still in the game, but um, it certainly has, has become much harder for them. So no, that, that that leads to another question, which is, you know, you work with a, a, a wide range of major companies across a variety of industries. How would you describe the difference between organizations that have responded well to the threat of digital disruption and those that have responded poorly. And I mean, you know, sort of from a cultural and organizational point of view, what's what's the difference? Okay, uh, it's interesting, Dave. So I think everybody's kind of, companies are on different uh, um, um, points of of the journey. And I think, and, you know, using Gartner parlance, you know, you know, Visionaries versus early adopters, etc. I think what we see is, um, what I see is, uh, industrial companies. Some are kind of very visionary, and, um, and but I think first it starts with the CEO and the leadership. I mean, you need to put in why do we need to do this, um, and, and as part of that, so and I'll use the analog of safety. Would you believe so? Uh, so yeah, particularly when you're talking about the sufficiency productivity part, there's. Safety used to be a safety department's job, and now it's everyone's job in heavy industry, right? So the same with digital as I think the companies that are doing successfully recognize that you don't have a digital department at the end of the day, that ultimately you have to make digital part of your DNA uh, and therefore transform the whole organization. So that realization has to happen at the leadership team level. So I think those companies that are doing better than others actually have that commitment and understanding at the leadership level. And it's kind of interesting, and you can and you, know, you can determine, if companies are serious about this stuff, do, look at their board. So how many heavy industry companies have an innovation committee or a digital committee at the board level, right? Uh, and you see this is quite common, and I recently did a uh, panel discussion in Florence in Italy uh, on energy forward, it's a global gathering of oil and gas, oil and gas leaders. And one woman on my panel, she sits on the board of Saudi Aramco, Baker Hughes, and Glaxo. And her interesting thing is that Glaxo has a science and innovation committee with people that know their stuff sitting on that committee at the board. The other two companies don't. And I think if you go around the industrial sector, the vast percentage of those companies do not have that. And I think that just kind of then ripples right through. The it's not important to the board. How's it going to be important to... <laughs> you know, the executive, et cetera. So it just kind of ripples through the organization. So I think those are kind of markers that you have to put out. Um, but I think, you know, having said that, there are companies, and I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples if you like. So I think yes. on the, uh, yeah, so I think on, and I'll take them in buckets on the products, companies that are doing, that have figured this out on the product and services, and I'll, I'll name them actually. So Exelon is one company. Uh, they, um, again, fast company, identified them as one of the most innovative companies in the USA and you know, go figure for a utility. But uh, they have actually, they have spawned a multiple set of new growth businesses uh, that are both digital, uh, apps, and around electrification, drone company, et cetera. But they've all been, they've recognized these will not thrive in the core business. So these are all 
individual spin-out sitting housed in a different organization to Exelon that is part of the innovation organization, but that allows them to hire you know, more startup type people, higher risk. So all the metrics that a startup would allow to thrive. So it's on the side of the business. So I always call it insulated but connected. So that's actually working quite well. Baker Hughes is another example, big oil services company. Uh, and they've got things from like additive manufacturing to virtual reality to uh, digital predictive analytics products that they've done in partnership with C3AI, Tom Siegel's company. They are all being spun out as separate individual companies uh, because the companies recognize, because you know, they have interest that these digitally based new products and services will not thrive within their existing organization because they'll just throttle it. So again, so I think those are two examples of how I think industrial companies need to think about uh, new products and services. So um, another one which I think is interesting, and you have some experience here, is I think GE, and I, you know, I've got a meatball tattooed on my arm as well, but I think uh, GE is a tale of two of, of the two, two tales, the bookends of success and you know, not such good success. So I think on the success side, I would say uh, GE Jet Engines with the predictive analytics. Um, so, you know, they've got very advanced predictive analytics and AI machine learning around jet engines. They've changed the business model to charge by miles instead of CapEx. So that's just a shining example. I think GE Digital, uh, and I've a lot of experience interacting with them over the last five years, I would say is an example of yeah, how not to do it right. Uh, and I know GE's kind of re, yeah, reshaping it, but you know, that's kind of a classic example of a 90s mentality being applied to a 21st century problem, et cetera, et cetera. So there's lots of, yeah, and that's being re, redone now under the new leadership. So that's, a, that's good. So that's that one. And then I think then you go into this kind of efficiency and productivity uh, area. So I think a couple of companies that I'll pick out here, I think BP uh, has done a really interesting job in applying AI machine learning and other technology into driving efficiency and productivity inside its business, as has Shell. Uh, and what they've been able to achieve in the last three, four years has been quite staggering using AI machine learning, et cetera, uh, to drive efficiency and cost reduction and production. Um, and another one is Anglo-American, which is a big mining company, and they have an innovation initiative called Future Smart. Uh, and for an example, they have a thing called the Intelligent Mind. And again, that's applying kind of predictive analytics, AI machine learning into the environment to drive efficiency and productivity. So, um, so those are kind of some companies and examples. Yeah. Those are some great examples and uh, very interesting. Yeah. What is it, you know, how are they, are, are they structured any different than their competitors in terms of supporting innovation? Um, is it, I guess in, in general, is it even necessary to, to change how you're structured as an organization to, to support innovation? Or is it simply yeah. doing what you do better? Yeah, so it's kind of, that's a really interesting question, Luke. And I think the I, I think the innovation community and you know thinkers have kind of thought about this a lot. And but I have a perspective. So I think industrial companies, I mean a lot of companies are like this, but industrial companies are very think a lot about organization and think if I just do if I just get the organization right, then it's gonna be fine. And I think we need to look beyond organization. To me, that's the last thing you do, because I think it's around culture and mindset and process. So I think the danger is a lot of these companies don't recognize that. So if we just create a digital team, everything will be fine, but they don't actually uh, thought for around how do I change the mindset and culture of the company? So, 
So I think, again, I think the answer is different depending if you're driving new digital for productivity and efficiency within the business versus on developing new products and services. So, so I think a couple of things. So first, when you're in the kind of idea investigation phase, as we call it, uh, when you have an idea for digital and you want to run a quick prototype or pilot, that does need to be, I think, housed within an innovation organization, so which is insulated but connected to the core business. But at, at some point, if that uh, is working and works well and will deliver value, then that needs to be transitioned and handed off to, if you like, the execution organization to drive the implementation and the scaling of it in the business. And a lot of companies actually, and this is not an organizational design flaw, it's a process flaw and mindset flaw, is people get these handoffs and transitions wrong. So they have people that are you know, doing ideas and investigation, which you know they live in the world of risk and ambiguity. They let them stay with these ideas for too long for implementation, and that's just not what they're good at. Or vice versa, the people that are very risk-averse and drive implementation are executors uh, given responsibility for these prototypes and pilots too early, so, and they don't tolerate you know, this kind of experimentation and iterative learning process. So I think that you could you could say that's part of organizational design um, and process design. And the last area then is, you know, how, you know, so if you like, digital transformation is not one department's job ultimately, but also it's not everyone's job at the beginning. So, you know, but how do you give a, and one client of ours has kind of has used this term a permission slip. How do you give a permission slip to everybody in the company, everybody doesn't have to take it, to be able to kind of partake in this innovation, come up with ideas and really get engaged with the digital transformation that's undergoing in the business. So that's one. So that's kind of the efficiency part and productivity part. The other one, new products and services. I, I'm a, there's exceptions here like GE with Jet Engines, but I'm a total skeptic. I don't believe in a, a, a strong thesis, always exceptions, but that if I'm building a new business that is uh, digitally oriented, I don't think they can exist inside the four walls of an existing industrial company. I think what Exelon and Baker Hughes have done is recognize that to be the case and to put those companies to the side um, and let them have their own management teams, et cetera, because otherwise you get into this kind of Walmart jet.com situation, which is, and they still may, but this mitigates this to a degree, which is I get to a fast growing business, but eventually the corporation goes, but you're losing money, you need to turn a profit. And I always challenge people, do you want a small profitable company? Or do you take the kind of startup approach, which is grab as much market share as possible, the Amazon approach even. Right. And just keep driving revenue. And I heard the Walmart CEO lament last year, again, at this Fortune conference, public speech, how you know, Jet, their e-commerce business had such a fantastic growth year, uh, but now they're under pressure to turn a profit. And I'm like, if that was Amazon, it'd be high five, let's put in another 100 million or 200 right, million. Right, right, right. And where the lot just go after it. So you know, that tension inside a big company tends to kind of hold back. I think these growth engines, and therefore, then allows them to be exposed for disruption. So, um, you know that. In the last area, I'd say, sorry, go on. Yeah. No, no, finish yeah, up. I think last, one last point, Lee. Yeah, is also I think the muscle of partnering. So, um, so big corporations have to move more from a, this kind of transactional procurement approach they have with companies, particularly startups, and get into a much more strategic partnering approach because a lot of these things are going to be done in partnership with other people and not just housed within your four walls. So that's a different muscle. So I just kind of put it down to culture, mindset, capability, and then this whole culture of experimentation, learning, uh, iterative learning, as I call it, um, and being able to – and they say, you know, uh, fail fast, fail cheap. 
method and living with ambiguity, these are all kind of skills that need to be embedded within uh, components of the organization. And I think industrial companies are really, really struggling with that, as are some other industries as well. So I'll stop right it, in, some, <laughs> in some ways, Peter, it comes down to uh, incentives, right? What are the, how are the incentives align in an organization yes. for all of those things, whether it's for partnering, yes. whether it's for... Uh, you know, running a, a a side business that's not immediately profitable and won't be for a number of years. That's not how the executives and members of the team are are incentivized. Which which brings me to a point where you made a, a you wrote in 2019 about you know some of the difficulties that these incumbents have and 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 made a point about the role of shareholders in this. And and can you sort of elaborate on that and talk a bit about where do shareholders come in, in terms of their expectations and, and their role in this? Sure, look, thank you. Yeah, so I read this article, so I coined the term that's no longer the innovator's dilemma, I call it the incumbent nightmare, um, because it, it's really got to a point now where <clears throat> I say you know, the markets and the shareholders have, are setting an unfair table. We kind of alluded to this in the Walmart situation, but I mean, look at all industrial companies, the, their traditional shareholders are mainly in these companies for dividend yields, right? And if you look at the shareholders of somebody like an Amazon, they're more into equity growth. They don't really, and even with Google and Microsoft, nobody's there for dividends, they're there for equity growth. Um, and what we see, therefore, is these the shareholders in the Amazons and the Googles, et cetera, have a high appetite for experimentation. They almost expect these companies to experiment on a lot of things and potentially lose billions of dollars in that process, right? Um, the same tolerance does not exist for industrial companies. They don't expect, they expect no risk. They don't expect heavy investment. They don't expect experimentation and playing in areas. So I think the shareholders in the markets really, one set of shareholders constrain the set of companies and the other set of shareholders and the markets actually allow almost unfettered innovation to occur. And Amazon just made an announcement today, which I think goes to the core of this. You know, we all know they set up these go stores, which are these cashless, cashierless uh, stores where you just walk in and walk out, right? So they set up three or four. That's a classic, you know, probably the cost of those stores and the technology experimentation, I would say is nine figures. That's my guess. So they just announced today that they've figured out how to scale this and now they're making their whole cashierless platform available to all companies. So they're going to go out and market it. I'm not sure... <laughs> That would happen in any industrial company or even in retail or stuff because there's no because that could have all gone pear shaped, right? And Amazon would have announced, oh well, that was all interesting. We spent three hundred million dollars and it didn't work. Onwards and forwards we go, right? Uh, that the market wouldn't tolerate that within a traditional company. So you know, I, I think I think this is a big obstacle, and th therefore I think the CEOs of industrial companies need to educate their shareholders more around innovation. That's why we need innovation committees or digital committees on boards. It's all part of this kind of approach of you know, messaging upwards, if you like. Right, right. Yeah, no, that's, it's, it's, it's an interesting dilemma, that's for sure. You know, one of the biggest, the biggest challenge, Peter, that, that, that uh, many of these companies face is we, we talk a lot, specifically in the energy and industrial worlds about all the data they have, right? They have, a, as, as you know very well, for many years uh, uh, providing software to the industry, there's a ton of data in, in these organizations. But, but getting that data out 
and even sharing it more broadly internally. I, I used to joke as an analyst that with clients that data moves faster outside your organization than inside. Um, but that getting that data out um, and, and exposing it to a broader audience, both inside and outside the organization, is 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 a challenge. What are your thoughts on this, and and and, and how do we overcome it? Yeah, it's kind of a, that's a really interesting topic. Um, and I'll probably use let's just use kind of AI machine learning as our kind of sandbox on this question, if, you, if I may. So I kind of bucketed into two areas. One is how do I make my data accessible and usable to whatever digital machine, let's say AI machine learning machines, that I'm going to have. And then, and then I think a rising area that we've seen in some of our clients is the ownership of data and where that data is being generated from. So with accessible and usable, I mean, we all know, um, you know, sorry to say it's funny, AI machine learning is in its third or fourth iteration. We used to call it decision support in the software industry. Then we went into business intelligence. Um, I mean, we were working in the software company I was with in the late 90s. Like we were working with neural agents, neural network agents embedded on the edge of routers and hubs. And we're working with the utility industry to make decisions on the edge uh, uh, to do remedial action and then send the data back up to the kind of central system. But that was fraught with problems because you couldn't get the processing power on the edge back in the late 90s. The network pipes weren't big enough to take the data. So this is kind of not new. But the challenge then as it is now, I have vast amounts of data. How do I normalize and standardize that data in a way that's usable uniformly? Because so, you have these stove pipes data in different formats from different generation systems. And yeah, there's a lot of articles I know that talk about 80% of the effort and the expense of getting to true AI machine learning is getting my data ready to be used by anything. So um, I don't think that companies recognize the enormous effort there. And this is where my IT actually infrastructure becomes an impediment to progress, right? Which actually becomes another uh, risk, if you like, or exposure industrial companies have to potential disruption or inability to deliver new products and services. So, so that's one. The other one is I find fascinating is the ownership of data. So we have some companies I've spoken to, there is battles over, so this happens in autonomy. It can't be many companies, but for example, if data is being generated by machines that are owned by one company and being used by another company, the company that owns the machines claims ownership of the data that those machines are producing, even though the customer owns the machine. Okay, and then wants to charge large swaths of money to the user to have access to its own data. And I know that's a huge tension in a lot of relationships. And and the reason this is happening is because the OEM of the of the machines knows that its future is in digital, and I think wrongfully thinks it has to own the data to make that happen because it wants to deal with these new products and services. Right, the user goes, well, I need to drive, you know. Uh, efficiency and productivity in my system, or I need access to this data, I'm not going to pay for it. It's, it's data my business is generating. So that ownership thing, I think that's going to be a rising area of tension between industrial companies, actually, as we go forward into the future. Uh, right. And I think we're seeing elements of that. So, And, you know, I can see the rationale and motivation for both sides of that equation, but it's pretty hard to say if I'm generating data even though it's on your machine, uh, you own it, and then you're going to make me pay for it twice. So right, kind of right. Like that just—I'm not sure True. that. And that's not saying IBM would say all the data that's coming out of my servers. Actually, I own that data, even though you own the server. And you have to pay for that. Right, I'm right. Just, I don't think there's any. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> Interesting so to see how it plays out. If, 
there, there may be a yeah. big role for lawyers in all of this, right? There's always lawyers. <laughs> exactly. So let's uh, mm. let's sort of uh, wrap this up by pulling out your crystal ball again. Um, you know, in terms mm -hmm. of you know where we started, and and get back to. Or, and spend a few minutes to sort of summarize what the next decade looks like for the energy mining infrastructure sectors. Um, you know, is there is there a, you know worst case and a best case uh, for the for the existing players in the industry? Um, you know, I mean, it's just uh, when you think about it, twenty thirty is only a decade away, and and uh, a lot's going to happen between now and then. I mean, the pace of change is not going to slow down, as as you and I both know. Um, so, what what's your your view of how things are going to play out over the next ten years? Uh, I, I think it's an exciting time, personally. Um, I would, don't want to predict, you know. I mean, I actually I will predict. This is a prediction which, you know, like, I'll be like a weather forecaster. It's fifty-fifty. But I think the value. This is key. This is not about industrial companies going out of business. I feel that in most industrial sectors, the most valuable companies in most sectors in ten years will actually most of them don't exist today. That's a prediction. Um, and, that, and there's a difference in valuable company. And those valuable companies will probably be companies that are asset light, uh, companies that have figured out how to extract value from the value chain without owning the assets. So, but I think in all the industrial sector, I think some of the characteristics that we'll see in the next 10 years, we see some of that already in manufacturing, but as I think most functions in the energy, mining, and heavy industry sector will be done largely without people. So I think the emergence of heavy use of robotics, which we do see in auto manufacturing, but I think will be ubiquitous across uh, most of these sectors. And a lot of that's going to be driven by AI and machine learning uh, platforms that allow pretty sophisticated decision-making. So whether it's an oil platform or a mine or steel mill, I don't think there's going to be a lot of people running around uh, in any of these facilities. Um, I think we're going to see much higher rates of productivity and efficiency as a result of that. So whether it's, you know, just the the economic output of these facilities will go up exponentially, potentially. Um, and I think conversely, the amount of energy and water and other resources they use to produce that, I think, will be reduced significantly. So I think there's an enormous opportunity for innovation yeah. and particularly digital. Um, and I think the other area is I call small as the next big. So I think one of the opportunities, whether it's additive manufacturing um, or whatever, is scale is no, no longer going to be an advantage because I can do everything at a micro scale because of technology. Uh, we're seeing that in mining. We're seeing some emergence of technology where you have these, you know, we call it swarm mining. We have little robots. They're just swarm mining, uh, all being coordinated. And again, that's kind of a combination of autonomy, AI, machine learning, and robotics all working together, uh, which creates these kind of small scale situations. You know, so I think small being the new big is a really a kind of interesting area as you know, uh, that may emerge. And then finally, obviously, additive is huge. And I don't know if you know a company called Rocket Lab, which is it's a New Zealand company, so I always advertise that. Uh, mm. so it's in uh, setting up those micro-satellites. It's a company that has, yeah, it's built a rocket using advanced materials from patents from America's cut boats. Uh, it 3D prints the engines. Uh, and it's not into reusable satellites like SpaceX, but it's just you know, just disposable satellites. And the launch are only two, three million. I mean, a, a dedicated launch. I think they did one for the NSA recently. Was I think seven million all in to launch these microsats. 
So wow. here's an example of a company, you know, that's not only manufacturing and launching, but using a whole, you know, there's a whole new, uh, digi- it's, a, it's a digital native company using advanced technology to kind of innovate in space, right, in ways that we hadn't even imagined five years ago. Yeah, you know, it's based in Southern right. California, so a very unique company. As an example of, you know, I think where the world's going. So. Right. Yeah, no, I, yeah, taking yeah. people out and, uh, you know, small is new, big, very interesting. And, and of course, as you know, it doesn't just improve effectiveness and efficiency. It also will ultimately improve reliability and safety and and sustainability. And so in other words, minimize the environmental yeah. impact. What uh, exactly. just we typically end these things, Peter, to, if you could share what you're reading or you've read recently that you think would be interesting to our audience. It doesn't have to be on the subject du jour, but whatever you think would uh, you think is interesting um, and that would be valuable to them. Okay, uh, I'll do three things. So I think I, I, I was kind of musing on this. I was kind of interesting. Uh, on the topic, I think actually there is not a lot to read. And here's why I say this for industrial companies, because everything that's written is largely written about technology companies. And I always tell industrial companies, do not look at the Amazons of the world for inspiration. I mean, so these are dig- companies, they're digital transformation and di- and innovation, disruptive innovation is in their DNA. You just, and I think what happens is too many people peddle the technology industry examples as things that forward for industrial companies. I think it actually is, uh, uh, is, is doing a negative service for those companies. So one book that I would recommend is actually Tom Siebel, who I met recently. So he's written a book called Digital Transformation, Survive and Thrive in the Era of Mass Extinction. So I think he is coming at that from more of a non-tech industry set of examples. Um, so C3AI is one of the leaders in, in this area. So I think that's kind of that's a book I would recommend that's very – uh, focused on the area that we just talked about. And I would discourage people from reading books about technology industry that use technology industry as the examples for digital transformation. I just, I think you'll get depressed. And I don't, and I think the applicability is not there. A second book that I would recommend that's got nothing to do with digital transformation is a book I've just recently read called The Choice, uh, which is by Dr. Edith Eager. Uh, and that book is around how, and this is kind of relevant, is how do we free ourselves from the prison of our minds because we have a choice. And Dr. Edith Eager is a 93-year-old psychologist uh, who works uh, with trauma. It's one of the top in the US. But I think the choice is kind of interesting, how we make choices in life. So I think it, 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 it has a, both a personal and professional kind of reflection. Uh, and then just on kind of a newsletter basis, I really like some of the Axios newsletters that come out. Um, you know, Pro Rata Podcast is another one which is really good around kind of very fast-paced uh, thinking around digital, and that's more practical. So those are my kind of non-call-out and call-outs. Great, great. No, that's those are great. Uh, some some very uh, diverse uh, suggestions there. I'm sure uh, valuable uh, reading. So great. Well, thank you very much. It's been a very interesting and informative conversation, and uh, appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. This is Leif Erickson, Insights Partner Memento. Thank you for listening today and please share with us what you found useful, as well as your own perspectives on digital industry.